We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, and we've seen that this book has been given to the people of God uh, to prepare them for the coming of God's anointed and chosen king. Uh, we saw that uh, early on in the book, the people had chosen to reject God as their king and wanted a, a king like the nations. God gave them what they wanted and who they wanted. And Saul, uh, we saw that that was a disaster. Uh, for the people. And so God in His grace and His mercy provided a king of His own choosing, a man after God's own heart, David. And early on, it, it seemed that, uh, that the, the victory in the coming of the kingdom would come quick and swift as David, as a, a, a young boy, defeats Goliath. But since then, the coming kingdom has seemed slow as David has been... Uh, pursued and persecuted by Saul. What, what is going on there? I thought David was God's chosen king. Why has the coming of his kingdom been marked with suffering and been marked with rejection? Does this mean that he's not the valid king? Does this mean that he's somehow in disobedience against God or that God's not powerful enough? to bring His anointed one to the throne? These are questions that we have, and questions actually that I think the chapter that we're beginning to look at uh, this morning uh, will help us answer. For in, in fact, uh, in, instead of having us doubt and question whether the suffering is something that disqualifies David from being king, what we're going to see in this passage is actually the coming of God's king and the coming of God's kingdom must be marked with suffering. For that's the path for the king to the kingdom. So if you would, look with me in chapter 21 of the book of First Samuel. This is on page 244, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. We're going to go through all of chapter 21 down through verse 5 of chapter 22 this morning. So if you would follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. Uh, remember where we left off in, uh, in chapter 20. Uh, David has just found out that Saul is seeking to kill him. Uh, and so he is, he is fled. And that's where we're, we're picking up. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, uh, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or what's ever here. And... The priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave the, him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before Yahweh to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. 
Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before Yahweh. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Uh, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing uh, sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before him and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are there. We thank you that you are not silent. We thank you that you have spoken in the past through your prophets. We thank you that you have spoken through your Son. We thank You that in Your mercy and Your grace You have preserved all that You have spoken to Your people in the written Word of God. We pray as Your people, as we hear from Your Word, that we would see Your goodness, we would see Jesus, and we would hope in Him. In Christ's name, Amen. As... Jesus was seeking to teach his disciples uh, about who he was and what he was uh, seeking to accomplish and do in the world. Uh, A lot of times, one of his favorite ways to refer to himself was using the term the Son of Man. Uh, Not necessarily Christ or Messiah, uh, but uh, remember, Christ is the, the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word Messiah. Both of them just mean anointed one, uh, which Jesus was, God's anointed king that was going to come and rule and reign forever. But instead he used the term son of man. That actually uh, could be understood as just meaning a human. Or if you read Daniel 7, you see that it's also the designation of one who is going to come and who is going to receive all power and glory and honor in heaven above and on the earth beneath. 
And as Jesus is talking to his disciples about this, him being the Son of Man and what it is that the Son of Man is going to do and why he has come to the earth, he says this to them in Mark 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here, Jesus, God's anointed one, the Son of Man, the King, is communicating and seeking to share with His disciples that as I come to my kingdom, I must suffer. But in Peter's mind and the rest of the disciples' mind, this makes no sense. A suffering king? I thought you were here to deliver us. You got this all wrong, Jesus. As Peter rebukes him for communicating that the king must suffer before he comes into his kingdom. So much so that Jesus responds to Peter's error and says, Get behind me, Satan. You have your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. Jesus is seeking to communicate that the path to the kingdom is marked with suffering for God's anointed one. If, uh, if, if Peter maybe would have uh, read a little more in the Old Testament and had eyes to see and understand, he would have seen that the path to the kingdom for God's anointed one has always, always been marked with suffering. For that's the path to the kingdom. Did you see that in this passage? How David, God's anointed one. In fact, Jesus is the the fulfillment of the promise given to David that one from his line would rule and reign forever. We look back to the establishment of David's kingdom and see that from the beginning, the path of suffering. Look Look in this chapter. Remember, how does it even start off? David is fleeing. Why? Because his enemies are seeking his life. In verse 1, we find out that he's alone. Ahimelech responds, Why are you alone and no one with you? Here in his suffering, in his persecution, he's by himself. Continues on. He's hungry. In verse 3, he comes to Ahimelech and says, Now what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. He's unarmed. In verse 8, it tells us, David says to Ahimelech, Then do you not have a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me. Here, as he's being persecuted, pursued by his enemies, he has no way of defending himself. The suffering and the circumstances and the situation seem to get worse and worse for David. Then we find out really how bad it is as we see the desperation David is facing in the midst of his suffering. Look in verse 10. David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Where's Gath? Gath is in 
the land of the Philistines. Do you understand? It's so bad for David under the persecution and suffering that he's experiencing at the hands of Saul that it's a better option in his mind to leave the people of Israel and to flee into the kingdom of his enemies in Gath. David is desperate under this suffering. In verse 12, when he comes into uh, the land of Gath and the, the, the king's servants find out that David's there and who he is, and then they begin to inform the king of David's identity and of his, the, the way that the Lord has blessed and used him to bring deliverance to the people of Israel, they say, don't you remember the songs? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And notice what it says. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. He's fearful. He's scared in the midst of this persecution. And he finds himself in danger because they're not just... How is David able to hear it? It's because they've captured him. Notice what it says in verse 13. So he changed his behavior before them and and pretended to be insane in their hands. He's captured What are you thinking, God? This is your your king. Why is he being rejected by your people? Why is he being pursued and experiencing suffering? Why is he alone? Why does he have no place to lay his head? What is going on? Maybe David's not the true king. Maybe it should be someone else. Maybe this is a sign of David's wickedness and of his sin. This must be his rejection by God. But no, we've seen that's not the case. Remember what Jonathan communicated to Saul in the last chapter? That David is without sin here. Not that he's completely perfect, but as far as it relates to Saul, he has not sinned against Saul. In fact, we saw in David's psalm that he wrote in Psalm 59 that he communicates and declares his innocence that he has not sinned against Saul. In fact, he is seeking and following the Lord. And the Lord is with him, yet the Lord leads and brings him into this place of suffering. David is the innocent sufferer, but God in his purposes, God in the work that he is seeking to accomplish and reveal to David about what kind of king he is going to be, about what the kingdom will look like, and his uh, intentions to reveal to us, God's later people, of how the kingdom will come about. He's bringing his king down a path of suffering. Uh, You see, as we think about this and then apply it to, to Jesus, what we should begin to see is that the suffering that Jesus experienced doesn't disqualify him at all. In fact, it puts him right in the line of what we would expect when God's king comes. That the path to the kingdom would be marked with suffering. That it would be marked with rejection. Uh, Jesus here is following in the path and in the footsteps of his father, David. Uh, Remember what... Jesus told his disciples as they were on the road to to Emmaus and as they they gathered together, he opened up their eyes so that they could understand the scriptures. And what was it that he wanted them to be able to understand? 
from uh, the law and the prophets was that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he must rise again. Here, do we not see this passage in 1 Samuel pointing us to the necessity of God's chosen one needing to suffer, needing to be rejected, needing to be under the assault of his enemies? This begins to open up our eyes and helping us understand that we see the need for Jesus to suffer because of how dire our situation is. The only path, not just for the king, but for us to enter the kingdom is through the suffering of the promised one that God would send. Jesus and his suffering has been foretold from the beginning of the scriptures. Even as we look back in Genesis 3.15, he's going to be the one that deals the death blow to the serpent, but not without great cost to himself as his heel is wounded in the process. It's always the path of suffering for the coming of the kingdom. But in the midst of this suffering, what we don't see David doing, what we don't see Jesus doing, is responding and being angry with God as if he is to blame. In fact, what what we see happening in this context is that in the midst of the suffering that the king experiences, we see revealed the dependence of the king as one who is trusting and resting completely and totally on his God. Notice how we see that here with David. Notice before he goes to Gath, in the midst of his fleeing from Saul, his dependency upon God. Uh, in verse 1, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling. Uh, why, why is David running to the priest? Why go there? Well, we see later as uh, he talks about the bread of the presence, which David will be given later. Notice how it describes this bread. The priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before Yahweh to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. This is bread that would have been placed in the, uh, the presence of uh, God's special presence, uh, uh, signified and, and pointed to through the ark. Now, remember, the tabernacle had been torn down, but apparently at this time, some sort of structure had been rebuilt. And so God's special presence is here. And that's why the priest is there ministering. And David's first thought as he's fleeing and running from Saul is, I must get to the presence of my God. Why? To inquire of him. What am I to do? I need you. In fact, we will see in a couple of, uh, or next week as we look in chapter 22, that's in fact what Ahimelech tells Saul when Saul finds out. Look, look down in verse 10 of chapter 22. Uh, I saw the, this is the bottom of verse 9. I saw the son of Jesse come into Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. This is actually uh, uh, Doeg first um, uh, reporting to Saul. And he inquired of Yahweh for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And then Saul says down in verse 13, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him? And then when Ahimelech uh, talks and, uh, and says, 
uh, later in verse 15, confirming exactly. Is this to, is, is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. David's intention, what he's doing is he's going to seek and inquire of his God. What will God instruct him? How will God provide for him? Uh, in fact, as well, we see it uh, demonstrated and shown at the end, after he visits Gath. Down in verse 3, notice what he says to the king of Moab. In verse, yeah, verse 3 of chapter 22. Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. David's waiting, patiently, listening. What is God going to communicate and say? Now that looks great before Gath and after Gath, but... In the, when David's in Gath, it seems like all dependence upon the Lord has been cast aside. Now, when David's really afraid, as he's captured by the, the thugs of, uh, of Achish, and he's there in Gath about to, from his perspective, probably lose his life, now it looks like David has ceased to depend upon God, and now he goes to some sort of scheming and trickery. you notice what he does? David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the door of the gate, meaning he was clawing on the back of his fingernails. He's letting spittle run down in his beard, so much so that Akish says, this guy's mad. I already have enough crazy people in, in uh, the nation of the Philistines. Why are you bringing me this guy? He's definitely not coming into my house. His, why would David, it seems, resort to this? Well, if we just try to read it on the surface, it might appear that David's not trusting in the Lord. But this... This is the beauty of the Scriptures. In, uh, in the book of Psalms, David has written at least two Psalms that correspond to this event in his life. Read with me. Flip over to Psalm 56. As we hear from David, what was going on in his heart and in his mind in the midst of his fear, in the midst of his suffering before Achish. Notice, again, we've, I've talked about this before. These titles are a part of the original manuscripts. Look in verse 56, or the, uh, the, right before verse 1 in chapter 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a micam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. He's captured. What's on his mind? Look, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. In verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do for me? He continues to, to go down. You've kept the countings of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back, and this day when I call this, I know that God is for me. And God, whose word I praise, and Yahweh, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Even in the midst of this, what is going on in the heart of David is he is one who is deeply dependent upon his God. And in the midst of his deep fear, the place that he goes is trusting and hoping and resting in his God. God here delivers him, as we'll see in a little bit. God works through means, but we see that what's going on in David is recognizing his need to flee to and depend upon his God. Remember, the true king. One of the things that we've we talked about and mentioned before is that the ruler of the nation of Israel, the king, was to be the ideal Israelite. The chief discipler, you could say. As you look to him, you should see what it looks like to walk as a faithful follower of God. And that is a life of dependence. The king must always be in submission to and trust in the true king, God. And here we see David modeling this. But do we not see it more so through Jesus? Think about all the instances in Christ's life where he's working and he's accomplishing and he's doing all these great things, signs and wonders and miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's feeding thousands of people, multiplying bread and fish, walking on water. He's speaking and controlling the storms and the wind and the waves. You think a guy who has it in control like that, who's got it going on, doesn't need anyone. He's self-sufficient and independent. But no. Because remember, Jesus is God the Son who took on flesh. In Him, we need the perfect man to redeem us. The perfect King. And Jesus in His humanity does nothing apart from depending and trusting upon His Heavenly Father. How many times do we see and read of Jesus withdrawing to pray? Of Jesus withdrawing so that He can commune with and seek and talk to His Father. The true King is not one who is just a suffering King, but He's a dependent King who's looking always and totally in dependence upon His God. What about you and what about me? In the midst of our fear, where do you go first? Anxiety? Fear? Going over and over in your mind about what the worst case scenario could happen? You begin to plan and think through, oh man, I'm out of control. I got to start figuring out what I need to do to get on top of this situation. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's yelling. Maybe it's manipulating this person or that person. Maybe it's Google. If I just have enough information, I can figure this out and get myself and my family out of all of this. I'll call my friends. I'll call the doctor. I'll call this. I'll call that. Where do we stop and be silent? And call out in dependency upon our God in the midst of our fears. That's what we see our Savior doing. Do you realize this? If Jesus, if Jesus needed to pray, should you and I not need it even more? 
that in the midst of our fear, like David points us to, and Paul, again, reiterates the same thing, if God is for me, who can be against me? Do you realize who you have on your side because of the redeeming work of your King? What a privilege it is to go to our God. Here, we see our King. The path to the kingdom is marked with suffering. The King, as He travels this path, is marked with one of dependence, consistently and always resting and trusting and hoping in His God. We also see that it's marked with provision for the king. Do you notice that? Remember, David was hungry as he's fleeing Saul uh, as well. He goes to inquire of God with Ahimelech the priest, but he needs some food. Later, he's going to meet up with some of his, uh, with some of his uh, followers, uh, but right now he's alone, and he asks the priest for five loaves of bread or whatever the priest has. And the priest here says, I have no common bread on hand, but here's some holy bread. Uh, here he's talking about uh, the bread of the presence uh, that was put before the Lord in the, the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is, uh, the, the twelve loaves were to signify the twelve tribes of Israel. And as they were brought into the presence of the Lord, they were a new, uh, brand new loaves were put in on the Sabbath day pointing and communicating to the people that your renewal and your refreshment on the Sabbath comes from dwelling in my special presence. Here, the Lord provides for David from this special bread of uh, the presence. Jesus, actually, if you look in the, the Gospel accounts, He looks back on this and says that in light of the situation and circumstances, it was permissible for David to eat what was only allowed for the priest. But it's, it's bread. Nothing special, it's just bread. Here, the king, God's chosen king, is eating bread. What kind of provision is this? I was reading this week about Queen Elizabeth. She's been on the throne for 70 years. And they were telling uh, about what her menu is like each week. And the queen, uh, this has been a, 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 a tradition since Queen Victoria. At the beginning of each week, she gets a menu printed in French, giving her three options for every meal that she will eat throughout the entire week. She, the queen eats four meals a day, and so she goes through all of those options and selects and identifies what it is that she wants to eat. Sometimes it's venison, sometimes it's pheasant. Every now and then, it's salmon with truffles shaved on top. But the thing that stuck out to me was what she prefers for breakfast. If you want to eat like royalty and dine on the provisions that are given a queen, open up your Tupperware and pour yourself out a bowl of Special K. Because that is what she eats almost every single morning, is Special K cereal. Now, for David, think about it. To, to have a French menu given to you, and your choice of anything to eat would have been the provision of a king. But here, just bread? But we must remember where this bread is coming from. It's from his covenant God. 
It's from his Lord who is saying and communicating and reminding him, David, it is I who will sustain you. It is I who will provide for you. He gets Goliath's sword. But the biggest provision that we see provided for David is the Lord himself. Remember, I told you there was at least two Psalms that David wrote recounting and revisiting this uh, um, event in his life. Look over at Psalm 34 and listen to the provision that, uh, that David points out that comes from God. In verse 4, again, just so that you, you see in the title there, this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Abimelech just it means my father, the king. It's another term used for the king of Gath. So that he drove him out and he went on his way. So this is when the spit's falling on his mouth and he's clawing the back of the, 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 the doors. I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, he cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He continues and he goes on in 9 and 10. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack When we're looking and hoping and resting in the Lord, He provides all that we need. In verse 10, the lions suffer hunger and want, but those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. In verse 15, the eyes of Yahweh are towards the righteous, His ears towards their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of all of them. In verse 22, Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now that is provision. The covenant Lord and God of all things is near to you. He hears you. He sees you. He's present with you. Notice that this promise that David says here isn't just for the king. He says it's for all of those who seek and take refuge in God. Now, we've seen some incredible things happen to David. As his attackers are coming, God Himself, His Spirit comes in and stops Saul and his men from coming to David. Are those the promises we have? No. We've been promised that God will preserve us in order to fulfill our calling. David's calling is much different from ours. But God has always promised to be with us, but that doesn't mean we will not suffer. David didn't avoid suffering. In fact, he tells us here that many will be the afflictions of the righteous. Are we prepared for that? But what we need to to be assured of is the provision that is ours, that our God is with us that He loves us, that His attention is drawn to us, His people. But notice, uh, again, this great promise that is 
uh, is given here in uh, verse 22. Yahweh redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What, what is it that we need to be redeemed from? What kind of provision do we need for our redemption? Why is condemnation coming our way? It's because of our sin and our rebellion against God. As we begin to look at this, we see that the, that the provision expands further out and it draws into focus why our God needed to suffer. Why the path to the kingdom involves suffering? Because the redemption that is provided for God's people comes through the suffering of the king. The one who would give his life to redeem his people. Uh, over in verse 20, David says this. Pick up in verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers, them, delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. John, as he's talking about Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, he points back and he cites this verse. And that Jesus' death is fulfillment of this passage. That not one of his bones would be broken. It overlaps also because uh, the Passover lamb's bones were not to be broken. And so we see there that David is being, or Jesus is being demonstrated as the true Passover lamb. But here, what have we seen? That David is the innocent sufferer who's suffering for no sin of his own against Saul. Jesus, as he suffers and dies on the cross, as John is citing this passage, he's saying, do you not see that Jesus is the ultimate sinless one? The ultimate righteous sufferer? And that our problem is so severe that our only path to redemption is through the provision of God's suffering King that He would deliver us so that we would be redeemed and that we would never be condemned. Now, the path of suffering of the King begins to make a lot more sense. Because it's only when Peter and you and I have eyes to see that we deserve the condemnation of our God and that it's only the suffering of our King that will deliver us. The Gospel comes into full picture. But lastly, let's, let's just look and see the people of the King. Do you notice who gathers around David as he escapes? First, in uh, Beginning of chapter 22, it says that his father's house and his, uh, uh, and his brothers all come to him. But then notice what it says in verse 2. And everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Everyone in distress. Everyone in debt. Everyone bitter in soul. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? He's surrounding himself with those who seem to be outsiders and rejects. Those who have been pushed away by Saul and others. They're gathering around David. Uh, if you've seen the movie The Greatest Showman, the way that it portrays P.T. Barnum is he is one also who draws and gathers a lot of uh, societal rejects around him. A lot of times they called him P.T. Barnum's freaks. 
And all this, although the movie portrays Barnum as being a, a kind-hearted man who is drawing these people around themselves to better their lives and benefit them, the real story of P.T. Barnum early on is one who is only interested in himself and he's using these rejects to make himself better in the eyes of those around him. The way that he got started, the first freak that P.T. Barnum bought was a woman who was enslaved. She was blind. Because you couldn't sell slaves in the north, Barnum rented her for $1,000 and made her work 10 to 12 hour days, portraying her to people around that she was George Washington's 196 year old nurse. When she died, he charged people 50 cents a person to come and watch her body be cut apart and an autopsy be done. He had no care or concern for those who were outsiders and distressed. But what about God's King? Those who are in distress, those who are suffering, those who are in debt, those who are bitter in soul. They gather around David and he becomes their leader, their commander, their deliverer. Do we not see that even more so with Jesus? Come, come to me. All you who are weary laden, all you who are hurting and struggling and suffering, come to me so I can make money off of you? No, so that I can give you rest. Do you hear the invitation of your king? The one who suffered for you? The one who through dependence upon his father and through his provision lived the perfect life? died the death we deserved and rose to new life, He's there offering deliverance and salvation. Would you look and hope and rest and follow your suffering King? For that's the only path to deliverance. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your life, Your death, Your resurrection for us. We thank You that You have delivered us from all of our enemies and all of our trials. Uh, We pray and ask that You would turn our hearts more and more to You. May we follow You in Your suffering. May we follow You to the cross. As suffering precedes glory, we thank You that You have secured life and redemption and salvation for us. In Christ's name, Amen.